In the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter, we read the story of the most famous execution of all time. And in this particular narrative, which I welcome you to open your Bibles and attend to, I will walk through each and every verse of this text today, we encounter the end of life, so to speak, of three particular individuals. Each of the three men that had been brought to that hill had been taken to that place to pay a price for sin. Each of them had been fastened to a cross. They had been raised up on these crosses as a symbol of shame for all of the world to see. And each hung there now, struggling to breathe, clenching their teeth against the agonizing pain, waiting for the final hours of his life to slowly drip away. Three men with so much in common in this moment, and yet three men with so little in common in the most decisive ways. Three voices engaged in one of the briefest yet most universally representative conversations ever told. Three statements that say so much about their lives, and I submit to you today so much about our lives too. The Bible says that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at the one who hung in the middle. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. If you're really the Messiah, save yourself and save us. I suggested to you last week that there is nothing that so reveals the sap of somebody's soul, the character of somebody's life, as what they say or do when the sharp blade, the steel of suffering, cuts into the trunk of their life. We've already know that this particular individual speaking in this way to the man who hung in the middle was no Boy Scout. Nobody went to the cross because they had been exemplary in their moral behavior. The Romans reserved the cross for the worst of the worst, for the child molesters and the serial abusers and the terrorists and, and worse. And yet the words of that first criminal spoke so tellingly about far more than the deeds that he had done in his life. They told us something about the heart that produced those deeds in the first place. It was the sort of heart that was so poisoned with cynicism that it could be within a few feet of God himself and respond with derision and mockery rather than with worship. Can you imagine being that close to God and mocking and deriding God. Is that cynicism of the deepest kind? It was a heart that was so blackened with blindness, that's the only way I suppose that sort of cynicism could arise if it was fundamentally a blind heart because it could commit all of these acts of horror that had resulted in putting it on the cross in the first place and yet see actually no real reason for it to be there. To feel no really deep, penitence about why it was receiving the punishment that it was getting. Here was a heart that was so 
scarred with selfishness built up over time that it could actually watch an innocent, an utterly innocent man, a man who had done nothing wrong, who had done nothing but give his life away to heal, to help, to encourage others. He could watch that life being destroyed and yet think only of his own pain, only of his own hurts, and how the hurts of that saint next to him might be used for his own gain. This is the portrait of the first criminal on the cross, a man of cynicism, of blindness, and of selfishness. Are you not the Messiah? Mocked the one on Christ's left, then save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. When I read those words, and it's almost impossible when I read them to believe that there could be a heart that is that wicked and dark, I am tempted to condemn that individual until I look at my own heart and my own pattern of living. I remember all of the years that my own cynicism led me to mock the very idea of absolute goodness of the existence of a God at all. I think of all of the times that I, I simply uh, rejected the notion of someone who had absolute authority over my life. I thought all of my own rules were mine to set, that any good that I had in life I had largely earned or deserved in some way. I was cynical in the deepest sense of that term. To tell you the truth, I would think of that thief on the cross as somebody who is singularly blind to be in the presence of God himself and respond that way except for the fact that I have often myself suffered the consequences of being so blind, of working too hard at things that didn't matter and not hard enough at things that did matter, of abusing my body or my relationships, of failing to control my temper or my pride yet still somehow managing to feel sorry for myself when the natural consequences of those actions came upon me. I would say in, in spite of it all, why me? Why am I suffering this? Why is this happening? That figure, that first figure on the cross looks unusually selfish to me too until I begin to grasp how often I have gazed upon pictures of hungry children like we've just seen, thirsty children like we've just seen, and manage to just let it go, manage to just pass it by, feeling no really deep concern for them, only for me. How often I have been so impassioned about my own struggles that I had no margin to care for anybody else's. How often I've come to church, I've looked upon the cross of Christ, I've thought only to myself, what's in it for me? What can this religion do for me? How often have I expected a great deal from the world, how much I've asked for forgiveness and grace from other people, or even salvation from God as if it was my right, as if I was so clearly good enough I should have it. I think sometimes about my own selfishness, my own blindness, my own cynicism, and I realize I'm not that fundamentally different, bar some of the excessive deeds, I suppose, but not all that different in heart 
from the one who looked over at Jesus himself and said, aren't you the Messiah? Then do your job and save me. How many of us, I wonder, in those ways have oriented ourselves towards God? How many of us have this kind of sap that comes out of our life when the sharp blade of suffering begins to cut into us? There's something really strange about suffering. It does more than just reveal the internal life of a person. I think it also has this tendency to bring out either the worst or the best in a soul. There's something about this the French philosopher Simone Weil understood. She said that pain can either become a barrier to our growth, just a further occasion for the hardening of our cynicism, our blindness, our selfishness, or else suffering can become for us a bridge. It can become a bridge to a greater awareness of our own failings, a deeper understanding of our condition and our need, our desperate need for grace. Or else it can be this other thing. For the first criminal on Golgotha's hill, the cross was one thing, but for the criminal who hung on the other side of Jesus, suffering became something else. It became that other possibility. We don't know a whole lot more about the other thief than we know about the first one, that he too was an individual who had done some terrible things, we can assume, because he was there on that cross. But somehow, hanging there in the shame of that Palestinian afternoon, with all of the flies buzzing around, the, the blood oozing from his body, this man's heart somehow found a bridge Instead of a barrier, the other had just erected a further barrier between him and God. And this man reaches out to create a bridge. I don't know what caused that response instead of the first response. Maybe it was that he just sensed, mirrored in the faces of all of those people down there jeering at him, enjoying his pain, heckling him, maybe saw mirrored in their faces something of the corruption of his own heart and life, and it gave him pause to, to reflect. Maybe it was the experience of being utterly powerless, of being pinned like some common bug in a public display that took away any sense of the corrupt power that he'd ever been able to enjoy by afflicting his will on other people. Maybe it was the gaze of adoration that he saw in the face of that mother there towards the one in the middle, or that, uh, that woman Magdalene, or that, that other disciple John, and he realized that nobody had ever looked with that kind of adoration at him before. And maybe that brought him to a deeper place of self-awareness. Or perhaps as his mind began to wander in, in painful delirium, he remembered a strange tale that he'd once heard repeated by somebody who had heard some other man tell the story of a, a no-good son of a father who'd come to his senses in a pig trough and turned his heart towards home. 
and found acceptance there, irrational, irrational, impossible, unexpected acceptance there. Maybe that story he'd heard somewhere, someplace. And there opened up inside of him this crack of hope. We can't know for sure what it was that made the heart of that man different than the heart of that man. But what we do know is that there are some people for whom the crosses of this life create the opportunity for renewal that no other experience of life can bring about. I know of a woman for whom the hate and the criticism that got directed at her were strangely the very thing that she needed to wake her up to the lies that she'd been living by. I I, I know of a man whose utter failure and personal choices and collapses have paradoxically been the beginning of his salvation. And all across the centuries, there have been these people who upon some cross of of pain in life have finally seen how cynical or blind or selfish their ways have been. People who have found in the stories of Jesus a glimmer of hope that maybe the painful floor of reality they were now finding themselves upon was not in fact a scaffold that was the end of all things, but a bridge that was potentially the beginning of new things. I don't know if you've been there yourself. I don't know if you are there right now. But I pray that in the midst of whatever pain or struggles there, we may find our hearts turned toward God and not away from God. In the words of the second sinner who hung on that hill, don't you fear God, he says to the first one. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence. We are being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds actually deserve. But this man, this man here has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Of all of the sentences ever spoken by a human being, that one, from a certain perspective, has to rank as one of the most preposterous, the most ridiculous, the most foolish from a human standpoint. You could understand why Jesus might remember Mary as mother, why Jesus might think of Magdalene there, why Jesus might have in his head and his heart a concern for John, the beloved disciple, those people who stood there weeping at the foot of the cross. But why in the world would Jesus ever remember with favor somebody who had lived his life as cynically, blindly, and selfishly as that guy had done too? What in the world would ever make him think that there was an opportunity for him? What would move him in that moment to stretch out a pitiful hand for help? If those three crosses on that hill tell us 
nothing, it is that our apparent saintliness is a self-deception. If we were to be measured by our deeds or our lack of them, if we were to be truly held up against the plumb line of perfect righteousness, uh, we would, every single one of us, be judged for our wanting, for the sins of omission and the sins of commission. And there's not a single one of us that would not deserve judgment, even supreme execution, loss of life a hundred times over. The miracle that is proclaimed at the cross is that though we deserve to be in that location every bit as much as these two on the crosses next to Jesus are not required to go there because Jesus has taken our place. His blood has paid the price for our past. And now Jesus is far more concerned with our future than he is with our past. We may look and tend to look at each other as human beings, as, as fixed entities. We figure we see that person and we pretty much know who they are, what it's always going to be about. But Christ sees us not as human beings, but rather as human becomings. He is less concerned with what our hands have done or failed to do in days gone by than with whose hand we are willing to take as we go from this place. Here's the catch. For some of us, we can't reach out and take his hand because our hands are so full of what we believe we can still do for ourselves or have done for ourselves. It reminds me of the, the apocryphal story of the man who arrives after death at the heavenly pearly gates asking for admission. And he meets there St. Peter who inquires of him the password for admission. The man thinks for a minute and then he responds, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. And St. Peter smiles and says, oh, that's so true. God is so worthy of being praised. But that's not the password. And the man looks confused for a moment and he says, well then, God is love. And Peter again shakes his head. Oh, you've got no idea how loving he is. Yes, that's true. It is not the password, however. Well, certainly then, says the man, it must be he who tithes will be blessed. And St. Peter said, I wish more people saw it that way. But it is not the password. The man is very confused. He tries a few other answers and each time meets a shake of the head from the venerable saint. And then the man hangs his head in exasperation. He says, well then, I give up. That's it, said St. Peter. That's it. Come on in. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of good news for those who know they must give up the notion that they can be worthy and sufficient on their own. Once upon a time, a man hung on a cross, absolutely stripped 
of everything that the world holds dear. He had no moral credentials of any kind worthy enough to come to that place. In fact, his credentials spelled his utter doom. He had no theological truths to proclaim save for the fact that he did in some sense understand what a great sinner he was and what a great savior hung on the cross next to him. And the only thing he could offer was this affirmation expressed in slightly different words. He essentially said, I give up, Lord. I give up. I know I could never justify myself. And without your grace, I am utterly lost. I have no right to even ask this or expect it to be a good answer. But I say to you, please remember me. Think of me when you come into your kingdom. And at that humble utterance, somewhere in the distant spaces of eternity, or maybe so close to him that he would not even have believed it, there was a great creaking sound as the massive gates of heaven itself swung open wide toward him. And reciting a sentence that rings down through the ages as a word of hope for every single humble sinner since then, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today I will take you to be with me in paradise. I want to ask two questions for you and me to ponder before we go on our way today. And the first of the questions is this. Do you and I have that kind of assurance right now? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the words that Jesus spoke to that second thief and that he spoke to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed are also spoken to you, are also true of you? Do you have confidence that at the very moment you die, whether it's of the coronavirus or eating too much fast food, the second being much more likely in most of our cases. Do you have confidence that at the moment you die, you will be taken to be with Jesus in paradise? Do you have that assurance, not as a maybe, not as a hope so, not as a, as a uh, I wish for this, but an absolute certainty that you will be with Jesus? Jesus once said to his disciples, I will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. 
In other words, he didn't say, I think about it, I might do this. He promised, I absolutely will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am for all eternity. Do you know that those words can apply to you? And do apply to you. The only thing required is that you be willing to give up any notion that you are worthy enough on your own. Give up your past to him. Give up your thought that you can earn your way into heaven on your own merits. Give up your hope that anything of yourself, save that which you give to God, is going to paradise. And if you have never surrendered yourself to Jesus in this way, I urge you to let this be the day. Let this be the day of new beginnings when you have that kind of assurance. And so when I pray at the end of this message, the prayer that I'm going to pray, I hope you will offer your own heart to God through that particular prayer. But before we go to that particular place, let me pose the second and final question. Having received the assurance Christ offers, will you dare to offer an affirmation of grace, of unexpected grace to someone else? Will you say again to your spouse if you have one, you will be with me and I will be with you. I take you all over again today to be my wife, my husband, for better, for worse. No matter what's gone on in the past, let's think about our future. Let's go there together. Will you offer that to someone you love? Will you say to your children or maybe to your parents, I take you into my heart again today. I reaffirm that commitment, forgetting what lies in the past. I am committing to accepting and loving you into the future. You can count on it. Could you say that to someone? Could you say to a colleague or maybe even to one of your enemies, because of what Jesus has said to you, I will say, or to said to me, I want to say to you, I take you to be my friend. I take you not because you are perfect, but because in Christ there are possibilities. Not because I am perfect, but because in Christ there's hope for both of us. Will you both receive for yourself and will you offer to others today that kind of amazing grace that all of us so desperately need? And if you are willing to cross that bridge, then I invite you to join me in this prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Lord, you know us as no one else knows us. You know what goes on inside of us. From you, no secrets are hid. And you know, O oh God, that some of us have been living our lives more like that first man on the cross than we would want anybody to know. Some of us have been cynical, God. 
about the reality of your absolute authority and goodness. We have been blind to the seriousness of our own moral failures. We have been more self-absorbed than we can even see or understand. And yet this much, O oh God, we do barely understand. Like that second sinner, God, we have at least some sense that we are lost. Unless somehow you choose to intervene with a grace that we could never earn, could never command. And so today, God, we give up. We let go. We surrender our past to you. We give up our self-justifications to you. We give up our sin to you. And you have promised that as we do that, right now, what has been a barrier between us before now becomes the bridge. You have promised that the slate is absolutely clean, that the future is completely filled with new possibilities. The assurance is absolutely ours that we will be with you in paradise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us, we pray, to go forth now to extend that grace to our family members, to our friends, to even those who before this day we might have gladly nailed to a cross for the sake of him who went there that no one would ever have to again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus saying together, Amen.